Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I recently spoke with Els Van Dungen about her new book, Realistic Revolution, Contesting Chinese History, Culture, and Politics After 1989. This came out in 2019 with Cambridge University Press. This wonderfully rich book takes the reader into and through a series of debates that happened between 1989 and 1993 among Chinese intellectuals. During this period, Chinese intellectuals grappling with all that was going on during this time, including the end of the Cold War and Deng Xiaoping's reforms, moved away, as Els shows in the book, from radicalism and advocated instead for realistic revolution. And they did so with an eye towards the future. They advocated for conservatism in the service of future modernization. These are really fascinating debates, touching, of course, on history, culture, and politics. And these are, as well, debates that went really beyond the borders of China proper itself, not just because some of the intellectuals that Els looks at in this book were trained in the West, and you know, not just because many of their articles and journals were published outside of China, but also you know, went outside of China in terms of the origins of some of the ideas that these Chinese intellectuals were dealing with. One of my favorite aspects of this book is how Els shows how Chinese intellectuals were using the ideas of different thinkers, including you know, the likes of Burke, Rousseau, and Hayek, weaving them together into their own ideas about the path China should take reinterpreting and reinventing these ideas for their own ends. So this is the kind of book that will appeal to those interested, of course, in the early 90s and in Chinese intellectual history. But many of the ideas and questions that the Chinese intellectuals in this book are grappling with, questions like what it means to be an intellectual, what conservatism is, what radicalism is, what the place of these isms actually is and should be in a nation, as well as how to deal with one's own history, these questions, you know, are not confined to China itself, and they're deeply relevant to the present moment. So if these questions are on your mind, and if you're looking for a book that clearly and insightfully unpacks what it can look like to look at these questions, if you're looking to get lost in ideas about how to build a better future, then this is potentially the book for you. And I will also add that this is a book that both explicitly and implicitly encourages us to move away from simple, static, European, Eurocentric notions of concepts like conservatism. For what it meant to be a conservative in China in the early 90s, as Els shows in this book, is quite different from what it means today. So with all this in mind, I hope that you get a chance to read Realistic Revolution and to listen with my conversation with Els Van Dongen that follows. 
I'm here today with Els Van Dongen to talk about her new book, Realistic Revolution, Contesting Chinese History, Culture, and Politics After 1989. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Els, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So before we get into the book itself, um, could you talk a little bit about yourself? How did you come to the field? And specifically, how did you come to the field of modern Chinese history? Yeah, so I actually came to the field of Chinese studies because I was primarily interested in the Chinese script. So as a teenager, um, I had two main interests, namely learning languages and uh, arts. So I'm from a very small country, so uh, from Belgium. So learning languages for us was sort of necessary and uh, natural. And so I was interested in learning uh, a non-European uh, language. And the, the script really attracted me. And as I liked art, I thought um, the writing sort of resembled a form of art. So that's the first thing that drew me to Chinese studies. And it's perhaps not a coincidence that I later... Um, turned to modern Chinese intellectual history because I was first intrigued by Chinese texts. And um, also, uh, I did my undergraduate studies um, at the Catholic University of Leuven, where we spent quite some time reading uh, Chinese texts. So um, a lot of classical Chinese texts, also modern Chinese texts. So this was a very um, philologically oriented uh, training. And um, I specifically became uh, interested in, in modern Chinese history and 20th century China uh, when I went on exchange um, as part of my uh, BA. Um, so this was actually in, in 1999. And um, I happened to spend one year in Wuhan, which at the time was much less known than uh, today. But this, this experience kind of really triggered my interest in 20th century China, because you could see um, the coexistence of uh, different um, legacies. So for example, um, Wuhan has these former concession areas, but at the time, uh, taxi drivers also had these um, Maoist uh, icons um, in their cars. And I also traveled across China, and it was very interesting to see how um, there was um, folk culture, but also the promotion of Confucianism, traditional culture. And so I became sort of interested in how all these um, traditions or legacies coexisted. Yeah, so that's uh, roughly how I um, came to uh, modern Chinese history and, and Chinese intellectual history. Fascinating and and quite I mean quite a little bit far away from philological um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> text within this book in particular. But I love that you mentioned legacies um, in your answer there, which I think is a beautiful transition uh, to you know get us a little bit closer to the book itself because this the book um, your book Realistic Revolution has quite a specific focus in that it's, you know, really looking at a series of debates uh, between Chinese intellectuals between 1989 and 1993. And these are debates about Chinese socialism, the path that China was taking at the time and what path it should take, China's own history, history of revolutions elsewhere in the world, you know, different legacies uh, dif that intellectuals were dealing with, um, and much, much more. But before we get to the much, much more 
Could you talk a little bit about what drew you to this period specifically? What interested you in the early 1990s, um, you know, the period right before, I guess, you went to China for the first time? What, what was the appeal in this, uh, in this period of time? Yeah, very good question. So I basically chose this period for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that this period has largely been overlooked in accounts of intellectual debates in contemporary China. So for the 1990s, there's generally a lot of interest in the latter half of of this decade, where we see uh, specifically the emergence of the so-called new left and also uh, the debate with, with the liberals. So the new left emerged after the sort of consequences of economic reform, um, such as social injustice, became more visible. And so there's a lot of interest in these debates between liberals and new left. And um, the early 1990s stands in between this sort of later period and um, the so-called new enlightenment of um, the 1980s, which uh, has also been researched. So the the 1980s basically was a, a, a there was an obsession with modernization, a renewed interest in science and democracy, and it's called New Enlightenment uh, in sort of reference to the the first Chinese Enlightenment or the May Fourth uh, movement of the early 20th century, the 1910s and 1920s, and so um, so these two periods have been investigated, but the early 1990s have been overlooked, and I think this is also because one might assume that this was a sort of stagnant uh, period uh, because of uh, ideological uh, repression. But I would argue that this is really not the case and that it actually shaped both um, intellectual debate and also the social identity of Chinese intellectuals in ways that are still visible today. And there's actually three uh, main uh, events, and I'll come back to the implications of these events later, but these events, I think, um, offer a very interesting uh, perspectives and um, also changed um, discourses. So the first event is is the end of the Cold War and the implosion of the Soviet Union between 1989 and 1991. So you mentioned revolution, right? So this raised questions about the legacy, to to refer to legacy again, the legacy of socialism and also the legitimacy of of the Chinese revolution. Secondly, there was the repression of the the Tiananmen uh, demonstrations, which also ended the alliance between Chinese intellectuals and the state and raised questions about their role in Chinese society. And then finally, in, in 1992, we see the launch of the second reform period, with Deng Xiaoping, uh, Deng Xiaoping's famous uh, Southern Tour and later the 14th Party uh, Congress in October. So this caused formidable changes that also existed um, in tension with these narratives of revolution and socialism. So these three events, I think, they all occurred in this short amount of time and had um, strong implications for intellectual debates. Uh, But yeah, and finally, also with the end of the Cold War, there were renewed interactions between different groups of intellectuals. And I wanted to bring these interactions to the foreground. So these uh, interactions don't only take place between um, intellectuals in mainland China and those who left after 1989 to the US and, and other places, but also between those based in mainland China and earlier generations of Chinese intellectuals who had left China around 1949 and who had uh, studied in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the U.S. 
and who basically um, considered um, themselves to be uh, the inheritors of a true Chinese culture that was not um, destroyed by socialism. And so debates on what it meant to be Chinese and Chinese culture sort of came back to the foreground during this period. And that, and that is why I think this period is also very interesting uh, because of the sort of renewed interaction and also the emergence of new journals uh, that enabled these interactions. So yeah, for all these reasons, I would like to challenge the idea that this period is not interesting or that uh, intellectual life was, was stagnant um, in spite of the repression um, that took place. To your point about, uh, you know, the challenge that you laid out about the, the early period, I mean, I think that that was one thing that I feel at least your book made so abundantly clear. Um, you said there that, you know, people tend to think of this, um, scholars have tended to think of this period of time as being quite stagnant when nothing was going on. I think the one thing, if, you know, if, if I had to pick one thing that comes through um, among other things, but one that comes through very clearly in the book is that there was a lot going on. I mean, you are dealing with uh, quite a precise period of time. You sort of, you uh, frame your book in terms of very, you know, short um, periods of time in which uh, seemingly, at least to this reader, a lot was going on and a lot was being written about it. So I think that comes through so beautifully in the book um, as a whole. So you mentioned, um, you know, the print and debates that were happening, and we've already sort of touched on this already. So I wonder if we could talk a bit about the sources that your book uses. Um, so this book draws on journal articles, official newspapers, monographs, and edited volumes that Chinese intellectuals wrote. And as you just mentioned there, um, these are Chinese intellectuals in China and outside of China. Um, and you pair you know, your analysis of these sources with a series of interviews that you conducted with some of the main scholars who feature in this book. So I wonder if you might first talk a little bit about these interviews. Uh, was this, you know, was it always your plan? Was this always part of your methodology to conduct interviews? Um, and I wonder if you might highlight one scholar in particular that you were able to interview um, during your process of putting together this book. Yeah, so um, the interviews were always um, part of my plan for the reason that well, as you, as you highlight, a lot was going on, right? So they actually throw around a lot of concepts. They refer to a whole range of foreign thinkers. So I wanted to have the chance to actually ask them about uh, why they actually invoked a certain thinker or how they read it uh, or when they actually encountered the translation of the work and so on. So the idea was really that I didn't just want to go and analyze texts and, and sort of look for hidden meanings, but I wanted to also engage in a conversation with these very scholars. And so, um, as part, so this book grew out of my PhD uh, project. And so as part of my PhD, I spent one year at um, Peking University. And so I conducted about a dozen interviews with intellectuals, uh, mostly based in Beijing, but also in, in Shanghai. And I would say all these interviews were, were very memorable uh, to me, because um, <clears throat> Chinese intellectuals are overall very generous, and they would invite me um, for dinner and drinks, tea sessions or even uh, smoking cigarettes together. 
And um, some would even invite me to their homes. And um, I would say it was memorable for me, for example, to meet scholars like um, Yue Taiyun. So Yue Taiyun, she's a scholar of comparative literature. And um, she was married to um, Tang Yijie, also a well-known philosopher. And she has this uh, memoir, uh, To the Storm, where she basically documents um, the couple's experiences um, in socialist China. So her husband was actually persecuted and then later rehabilitated. So to basically be able to have a conversation with somebody who, who led such a remarkable life was for me, um, yeah, absolutely um, a sort of unforgettable experience. But the interesting thing about these interviews is, of course, also that uh, scholars would tell me about where they got certain ideas. And, and so she also spent time um, in the U.S., for example, and she would she would say that certain ideas she actually got because she sort of was influenced by debates in the U.S. And the same thing happened when I um, interviewed, um, for example, Chen Lai. So he's a philosopher who was then at um, Peking University, and now he's at Tsinghua University. And he basically um, gave me uh, a list of all relevant publications. And then he talked me through it and he explained like um, how a certain publication grew out of a conference and whom he had met at the conference. And so I got a very good idea of how certain ideas uh, circulated and what kind of networks um, existed. And also, I think what is important is I wanted to understand how um, Chinese intellectuals themselves understood um, their sort of interpretation. So, for example, um, this scholar Chen Lai, so he also spent time in the U.S. and he studied with a well-known scholar called uh, Tu Weiming. So, so um, because he highlighted this connection, I then also incorporated into the chapter and I sort of teased out the connections between his sort of... Um, ideas and um and two way means ideas so so i would say yeah therefore these interviews were very important also uh to get a sense of the broader context and sort of insider information um things that go on between chinese intellectuals so another uh, thing that comes to mind is um i talked to mayung who's a historian at the the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, the, the Institute of Modern Chinese History. And I met with him a few times in his office and he really gave me a lot of background information. And uh, yeah, even though, as you see, my my period time period was, was very narrow, he actually said that this whole discussion um, was so broad that um, it, it would require 20 PhDs to cover every aspect of it. But he basically gave me a lot of inside information about discussions and interactions between intellectuals in the field. And also, like, he could tell me, like, funny or interesting anecdotes. So so one of the scholars who is very sort of interested in, in a 19th century translator called Yen Fu apparently uh, carried around a sort of plastic statue of this historical figure at a conference and he he basically was like joking about it but somehow I remembered it and I thought it was a very good sort of image of how um, yeah past thinkers get reappropriated in a Chinese context so yeah overall I think these intellectuals um, yeah the, the interviews served a lot of different purposes 
And uh, beyond the usefulness for my research, it was, of course, for me, like an amazing experience to connect with all these, um, yeah, these, these scholars who have lived such extraordinary lives. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love the image of, uh, you know, the historical figure, the historical translator being reimagined, reinterpreted as a plastic figurine on a conference table. Um, <laughs> I love that as an image. Uh, because, but because you mentioned, you know, sort of the networks, um, both sort of uh, between people, bet- between intellectuals, but also between thinkers um, in your answer there and in, you know, what speaking to some of these intellectuals brought um, to you and to your understanding of what they thought they were doing. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of your book as a whole to me is really how you tease that out and in particular how you tease out how the Chinese intellectuals that you're dealing with um, are grappling and putting together different concepts, many of them European, many you know different European thinkers um, in the debates that you're looking at. And so as a result of that, this book has a broad array of thinkers that Chinese intellectuals are using in a number of different ways, really in every chapter. Um, you know, you're dealing with some thinker re- imagined, reinterpreted uh, through uh, a Chinese intellectual. And you show throughout the book how the, you know, these European concepts or concepts that are at least coming from European thinkers are not just being used and cited, but really transformed. Um, so I know we're diving a little bit ahead with this, but I wonder if you could talk about this here, just because it sort of connects with what you were saying about speaking to people. Um, could you talk a bit about the ways that European concepts are transformed um, in some of these the intellectuals' writings that you're looking at? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, of course, one of the concepts that is being reimagined is uh, conservatism. So because I just referred to Yen Fu, I'll talk a little bit about um, how the main advocate of neoconservatism, uh, Xiao Kongqin, actually um, sort of read Yen Fu through the lens of Edmund Burke, the father of conservatism, and liberal Friedrich Hayek. So this is a sort of very interesting reimagining of um, Yen Fu through these sort of uh, Western uh, concepts. Now, the interesting thing is that this whole combination of conservative and liberal sources becomes used to actually advocate a strong state. So this is definitely not what Hayek would have advocated, right? So the interesting thing about this whole reappropriation is also that Chinese intellectuals kind of use it for um, to legitimize their um, position. So this is not something new that I'm seeing here, right? I think a lot of different scholars, for example, um, Gloria Davis have already uh, pointed this out, but we see this very strongly also for these debates of the early 1990s. So what uh, what Xiao Kongqin does, for example, so so his theory of neoconservatism, it was basically so. Um, let's say after uh, Tiananmen, there was an advocacy of stability, uh, and somehow the idea that Chinese traditional elements had to be used for this purpose. So central rule, but Xiao Kongqin did believe that um, the end result should be democracy. It's just that. Um, civil society was not developed enough. So he argues that we need a strong state to somehow um, develop this gradually. And so Yen Fu for him is sort of 
the prototype of the neoconservative modernizer um, because he actually understood that gradual change is required. And he, he conceived of society as uh, a social organism. And um, he understood that you can't just import one element. If you do so, you have to import all elements because it's all connected. And even if you import every single element, the result will still not be the same as you have in another society because these elements are connected to underlying factors that you simply cannot sort of transpose. And so what he does is he somehow... He argues that Yen Fu had actually read Burke and he considers him an advocate of Burkean conservatism. But we know that Yen Fu actually uh, flirted with social Darwinism. So what we get here is somehow a, a merging of, um, I guess, a social Darwinist reading of conservatism and also read through the lens of Friedrich Hayek. Um, and um, because... Uh, Xiao Kongqin reads Burke as a representative of Anglo-American liberalism and he very much emphasizes empiricism. So this is influenced, I argue, by the Hayekian reading of these different traditions. And and so, so what we get is a sort of like use of these thinkers for purposes that are very different uh, from the original. But the point is not to sort of... Um, argue that this is a sort of like distorted use right it's rather i'm rather interested in seeing how they use it in the chinese context and how they use it to support these positions so in this case uh, the purpose is to argue that a strong state um is necessary and then um, yeah xiao kungqin also has his own complete lingo like so he has all these terms so he uses the term of like the, the yenfu paradox um whereby um, yeah, both single import or wholesale import are uh, impossible. And then he uses the example of um, cows and horses, like even if you transport every aspect that makes a horse a horse onto a cow, you still won't have a horse, right? So it's all very vivid uh, language, a lot of sort of organic metaphors. But basically, um, yeah, I do argue that the, the conservatism here is sort of closer to social Darwinism, because they have very different understandings of change, right? So for in social evolutionism, change is basically necessary and, and directional, but for conservatives, it's actually accidental and it's based on concrete historical experiences. So they're basically turning some of these um, theories on their head. And that's what makes it, um, I guess, so interesting. Absolutely. And so very... Um you know, dynamic and fluid all at once. I think that's something that really at least came through for me in how some of these intellectuals are using these these uh, thinkers and theories, as you highlighted there. It's not so much about distortions, but they're definitely using, you know, multiple lenses all at once um, to read um, and reread some of these thinkers. And while this is all going on, of course, the intellectuals that you're looking at are grappling with their own place and what it means to be an intellectual in China during this period. And this, you know, this, you can almost feel uh, the anxiety over what an intellectual is in a lot of the chapters of your book. Um, so could you speak about this directly? What is this crisis of the intellectual that's going on in this period? And that is, um, 
leading so many of the intellectuals that you look at to, you know, to, to reach for these uh, different theories, to reach for these different ideas and to, you know, what is, why, why are they sort of, um, what is driving that anxiety here? Yeah, so um, if we want to understand this crisis of the intellectual, I first need to um, explain a little bit what we mean by intellectual here, right? So in Chinese, we're referring to the term jishifunza. And um, so this sort of goes back to the Russian sort of intelligentsia. So the modern sense of an intellectual as being publicly engaged um, so as opposed to traditional uh, terms that we use for scholars in a Chinese context, such as um, yeah, literati, shi, uh, and so on. So these modern intellectuals, um, this originated um, basically uh, in the 20th century. So in 1905, we have um, the abolishment of the examination system, which linked these scholars directly to um, the power holders and as they were trained to serve the bureaucracy. So when this system ended, this link uh, was broken. And then we see in the May 4th period, uh, the sort of um, emergence of independent uh, intellectuals. And uh, later, during the, the, the Mao period, uh, what Carol Hamron and, and Timothy Cheek have uh, referred to as establishment intellectuals. So basically, uh, they have to um, support the official uh, position and, and ideology. And so during this Mao period, the term Trishafunza or intellectuals was, was widely used. But I should also note that this, this term um, is not uh, clearly defined and also fluid um, as scholars such as Eddie Yu have explored in their work. So uh, what happened is, uh, during the 1980s, these intellectuals had been rehabilitated after having suffered and been persecuted um, during the Mao period. So there was this renewed alliance between intellectuals and the state. So I've mentioned before the, the modernization project of the 1980s. However, with 1989 and the suppression of Tiananmen, this alliance became severed. So one part of the crisis was, of course, um, Tiananmen. This was followed by um, years of oppression and ideological control and many also um, fleeing to the U.S. So this led to a period of intense self-reflection. So what intellectuals did was not so much directly confronting the state of affairs, but more like engaging in reflections on um, political engagement of the 1980s that had ended in bloodshed, but also, of course, the period of the cultural um, revolution. So, um, in a sense, this was a continuation of uh, reflections on the continuation of the cultural revolution as had taken place during the late 1970s and early 1980s in forms such as scar literature. But now this became transformed in, in, in the new um, context. So this context was also one of, I guess, an increasingly complex relation between intellectuals and the state as um, now intellectuals could also set up their own businesses, founded think tanks or were operating as consultants. And they also formed new alliances with groups um, sort of more outside of the political establishment. Whereas before, in the 1980s, uh, this mostly worked through patronage and editorial committees and so on. 
So, so there was, of course, the, the, the impact of the market, but at the same time, right, sort of like they were struggling with the impact of the sort of disastrous effects of the political engagement of the 1980s. And they started to self-identify as scholars rather than intellectuals, so as Shreja. And so, um, so now the intellectual heroes were basically... Uh, not politically engaged uh, intellectuals, but more scholars who were considered to be advocates of intellectual uh, independence, such as uh, Chen Yingke or Wang Guowei. And new journals were also set up that sort of um, reflected these these concerns. So the crisis, I would say, is is basically about 1989 and 1992. So 1989, the end of the alliance between the state and the intellectuals, and questioning this political engagement. And 1992, the impact of market forces and the, the sort of like what is meant for the role and identity of intellectuals under commercialism. And so um, <clears throat> Yu Yingshu has famously coined the term um, the marginalization or of Chinese intellectuals since the end of this examination system. And I think what we see here is a sort of um, intensification of this process with all these changes happening um, in such a short period of time. Absolutely. Going back to what you were saying initially about this period being not one of uh, stagnation and not, not one in which nothing is happening. <laughs> I think as we keep on getting a little bit deeper into the book, I think it, as um, as I tried to emphasize earlier, I think it becomes even you know clearer and clearer that there is quite a lot going on uh, in the sort of uh, the intellectual climate. Um, so thank you for pointing for you know uh, teasing that out even more. And you you mentioned market forces there, um, and in thinking about new periodicals that are coming out, um, because the debates that you're talking about, um, you know, we we talked a little bit. This goes back to sources, um, but the debates that you're talking about they are largely happening in print. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what this sort of looked like, because it is uh, in the early 1990s. It you know. It's not that long ago, but it certainly maybe feels or might look like it, um, because what you're looking at, of course, is before the internet really became the space in which uh, debates, intellectual debates were happening. So could you talk a little bit about sort of the print uh, nature, the print um, culture aspect of it that that you look at in this book? Yeah, so I'm basically uh, looking at journals that are not just based in mainland China, but also in places such as Hong Kong or um, the United States. And um, these uh, these print journals, I should point out, right, there is a big difference in sort of their circulation. So some of the, the sort of main journals, such as 21st Century, which I already mentioned before, so in Chinese, Arshi Shiti. So this journal, interestingly, was founded in 1990 in Hong Kong. And uh, so right after Tiananmen, right? So again, sort of showing that this was not a stagnant period. So this was a sort of highbrow journal that basically facilitated interactions between scholars in mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and the United States So a lot of um, interactions are going on through these sort of um, newly founded journals. Now, this journal had a sort of more smaller circulation because it was more highbrow. So we have to imagine 
maybe um, few thousand, it could be as these elitist journals could have a really small circulation. So this is very different from, I guess, today when we have online platforms where these intellectuals have a massive reach, right? So if we think about this, this also affects censorship, right? So some of the mainland journals um, that had a smaller circulation, that were more highbrow and that were located more in the South, could be less susceptible to censorship. Of course, Hong Kong journals at the time also had more freedom, right? So um, so I also include this in the introduction because I want to highlight that um, it's not just about self-censorship. Like some have argued that um, this whole form, like the abstract form of the discussion, uh, sort of served self-censorship purposes. And although there was certainly an aspect of that, I would say the fact that a lot of these publications um, actually appeared outside of mainland China um, showed that it was more complicated than that. But there was a big difference in circulation, uh, who was reading these journals, and um, uh, also in, of course, the audiences they would read. And, And also, I have to emphasize, I'm also looking at both publications in Chinese and in English, because I want to understand how some of these intellectuals in the United States were actually engaging with different audiences and sort of operated as intermediaries. So, uh, for example, Yu Yingshi, one of the people behind this whole debate on radicalism in 20th century China, he published both in Chinese and in English. So I wanted to look at how... um, where were the sort of English um, language publications published and what kind of um, Chinese publications appeared and when did they appear, right? So I'm, I'm trying also to to trace these different discourses and audiences to the extent possible, right? I'm, of course, aware that this is it's difficult to sort of look at the exact circulation of ideas, but but that was also the idea behind it. So I wanted to look at basically the sinophone uh, print culture. So, um, so basically, looking at journals uh, also beyond mainland China, and I also actually spent um, <laughs> six months in uh, Boston because it has a very good collection of these, um, I guess, journals by Chinese intellectuals who left China after 1989. Um, and so, yeah, I also looked at these, and then I also included official newspapers. Um, and so on, right? But of course, yeah, so it would be interesting to look at um, the impact of uh, online publication on on discussions as the reach is much bigger. And also today what we see is the sort of online forums are taken down because, yeah, the reach is just much broader. And so there is a bit less leeway, ironically, as there was during this period of repression um, because censorship was highly contextual, and as I mentioned, circulation could be smaller. Uh, so again, it's less straightforward than than we would assume, and there's much, there's many more layers to to the discourse. Yeah. Great, and I think what you, I, part of what um, I think is really impactful about when you know you're using these journals that are uh, written and published in Hong Kong um, and elsewhere 
is that it really adds another layer to the question of you know what an intellectual is during this period because it then of course brings up the question of what a Chinese intellectual is, um, and this is you know particularly relevant when we get into those uh, periodicals that are um, uh, published abroad. Um, and there's one uh, section of the book that I want to highlight in particular, and this is something that you cover in chapter four. Um, debates between intellectuals in mainland China and Chinese intellectuals in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and the United States. And this is a really fascinating chapter because the intellectuals that you look at in this part of the book are really trying to evaluate and make sense of modern Chinese history, and in particular, the merits of something you've already touched on, the Cultural Revolution. And they're trying to do so by referencing different models of revolution, um, a realistic revolution, which we will get to, uh, and the utopian uh, revolution. Um, and there's, because there's, you know, there's a lot in this chapter, including uh, ways and interpretations of history, right? There's a lot in this, in the book as a whole, but in particular here about how to evaluate Chinese history. So I wonder if you might talk about this um, or this chapter in general. Yeah. So uh, this chapter, um, it started interestingly in the spring. So this is about a major discussion on uh, conservatism and radicalism in modern Chinese history. It started in the spring of 1992 in the journal that I mentioned, the 21st century uh, that was published uh, in Hong Kong. So this was the period right after Tung's Southern Tour and the sort of launch of the socialist market economy. And we see this very clearly in the discussion. So basically, um, we have scholars based uh, on mainland China, but also outside of mainland China and specifically um, in the United States. So what these different groups of scholars are doing is they're, they're discussing the cultural revolution through the lens of different revolutionary models inspired by Hayek. So we get a sort of very um, different debate than we would expect. Namely, they're now reevaluating the cultural revolution by talking about a range of scholars, um, mostly conservatives and liberals. So apart from Hayek, we have Edmund Burke, again, Edmund Burke, um, Alexis de Tocqueville, and also Karl Popper. And so inspired by Hayek, they basically argue that there have been two revolutionary models. So there's a so-called French model, which they consider to be utopian. And uh, Hayek, this is drawing on Hayek, right? So for Hayek, this model uh, basically used rationalism and grand collective purpose. And so what Chinese intellectuals do now is they associate this model with uh, socialism and the disasters of the Cultural Revolution. And they contrast this with a, an, an English model, the model of the so-called Glorious Revolution. We might think, what does the Glorious Revolution of the 17th century have to do with the Cultural Revolution? So this is again inspired by, by Hayek, who highlighted this model as a model of sort of gradual reform and a kind of example of a, for them of a realistic revolution. So for Hayek, this model was based on empiricism, uh, cumulative growth, um, but also negative freedom. So they use this model to basically argue that we need to ground change and reform in, uh, in empiricism 
it has to be gradual, but also we shouldn't engage in sort of um, direct political participation. So again, reflecting on their political engagement of the 1980s. But interestingly, there is a difference between how overseas intellectuals sort of like um, use these models and how they were reinterpreted by mainland intellectuals. So I mentioned before that we have these different uh, generations of intellectuals. And so in this chapter, we see this interaction very clearly. So this debate on modern Chinese history was triggered by Yu Yingshi. So Yu Yingshi is a very well-known intellectual historian who was born in China, but who left around 1949 and who then studied uh, in Hong Kong at the newly founded uh, New Asia College. Now, so he's part of a group of, of scholars who left China and studied in Hong Kong, Taiwan, United States, and who basically defend um, cultural tradition outside of mainland China and argue that socialism had destroyed this tradition. And they also have um, a strong anti-communist and, and liberal agenda. So there's another scholar in this group, uh, Tu Weiming, uh, which I've already briefly mentioned, and he has a, the theory of a cultural China, where he argues that after the end of the Cold War, uh, we have different sort of um, cultural symbolic universes. So apart from scholars in mainland China, we have scholars in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, overseas Chinese, and even scholars who are not ethnically Chinese, but who study China, who could actually reshape the discussion. So they now actually engage uh, they, they sort of put the agenda of Chinese culture back um, um, and they, they basically um, sort of triggered this debate saying that um, 20th century China, uh, what Yu Yingshi argues, witnessed a sort of process of radicalization. And um, so he's not just talking about the socialist legacy here, but also about... Um, May 4th in terms of how the impact it had on Chinese tradition. And so the debate that follows, so Yu Yingshi has this lecture on this radicalization, which he traces back to um, the late 19th century when scholars started to question Confucianism. And then also during May 4th, they became obsessed with novelty and change. And then also, of course, later uh, Marxism, socialism. So, um, so this lecture then triggered responses. And so Yu Yingshi considers the Cultural Revolution to be the, the sort of last stage of this radicalization process. And the Cultural Revolution for him was sort of the culmination of radicalism. But then uh, mainland scholars, such as, for example, uh, the Marxist scholar uh, Jiang Yihua, would argue that actually the Cultural Revolution was too conservative. It was basically a manifestation of, yeah, of, of feudalism, despotism, and it had nothing to do with the Chinese people. So through a Marxist lens, he argues that this is a very elitist view of Chinese history, only looking at a few intellectuals. And then Yu Yingshi sort of hits back and says, well, the problem really was Stalinism and Leninism, and the CCP is nothing but a new class of exploiters. So it goes back and forth all the while referring to these uh, sort of conservative and liberal thinkers such as Edmund Burke, because Edmund Burke had wrote a famous book uh, in which he sort of reflected on uh, the French Revolution. So they're basically using these reflections on the French Revolution to talk about 
the cultural revolution. And so interestingly, so on mainland China, other intellectuals then sort of jumped in, but they started to use this whole discussion to argue for gradual economic reform and also to sort of come up with a combination of conservatism and liberalism that again sort of confirms this Hayekian view of a kind of gradual English model. Uh, and then they invoke Popper and they say, you know, Popper talked about piecemeal engineering and that's what we should advocate here. So, so yeah, all this is, is sort of going on. And then in between, they're sort of attacking each other. So the mainland scholars would say to these overseas scholars, you don't understand the real China. You're just reading some sort of print journals, but um, you have no sense of reality. And meanwhile, they also criticize overseas scholars for always reducing everything to the political context of mainland China. And so again, we see how they're also debating who has the right to represent China. So it's very different versions of history. One is a sort of more Marxist establishment intellectual version. Others are already sort of in the sort of economic reform mode after Deng Xiaoping's sudden tour. And then... Um, Still others, like especially sort of those outside of China, are advocating more a view of China in line with changes after the Cold War, namely a sort of cultural China in which everyone should sort of participate and in which Chinese culture should be revived from the margin. And, and this view is also then sort of anti-communist and, and liberal. So I look at these different uh, reinterpretations and, and how um, the entire 20th century is sort of fitted in this model of of the French and the English uh, revolutions that are taken from completely different contexts. It is a fascinating uh, re uh, understanding of history and you know reappropriation of history. And as you um, so, thank you for laying that out. Uh, this, this particular debate that you look at in this part of the book. And as you sort of laid out um, in your answer there and teasing out the different things that these Chinese intellectuals are saying, I think, you know, very much an undercurrent in, in all of this is that they're they're arguing about, you know, what what path should China take going forward and how to modernize and how that is going to look. Um, and you, as you mentioned, um, the l- large number of the intellectuals you're looking at are sort of arguing for conservatism in the service of modernization. And they're putting forth this uh, program for what you refer to in the book for a realistic uh, revolution. And this is such an important revolution for your book as a whole um, that I wonder if you could talk about this directly. So what was the realistic revolution that, that uh, was being advocated? Yeah, so I um, I use these terms in in different ways, but basically um, the I argue that there is a paradigm shift going on in political, historical, and cultural debates uh, all together. So all of them sort of argue for doing away with radicalism as a way of thinking that manifests itself both in the liberal and socialist traditions and both it could manifest itself both in reform and revolution. So it's sort of a rejection of the idea that there is 
what, what is referred to in Chinese as no making without breaking, So they're both rejecting the socialist tradition and the May 4th tradition for being too radical. Instead, now they're arguing just the sort of realistic refers to common sense approaches to change. And so this is partly in line with the official turn to, to pragmatism. So there's the famous saying of crossing the river by feeling for the stones. But I also argue that what Chinese intellectuals are doing is not just a confirmation of this official discourse. And in this sense, I also use the term revolution because uh, whereas the official solution is basically still confirming revolution in the past. So, um, for example, in the 1981 resolution, they argue that uh, the excesses of the Cultural Revolution were surely wrong. But the part of Mao that was responsible for the revolution is, of course, still confirmed. As opposed to this official solution, what many intellectuals seeing are now is that actually revolution as such was problematic. This is also a challenge to the legitimacy of the CCP. So in that sense, I also invoke the term revolution because if we look at it, in a Chinese context, this is actually, uh, it is very drastic as well. Now, the term realistic revolution uh, as a whole also refers to what I've just discussed, uh, for example, in this 1992 debate, namely the practice of juxtaposing revolutions and identifying the most realistic revolution to rewrite China's past and future course. So before these, the, the French and, and Russian revolutions had served as models, but now um, Chinese intellectuals rejected these models in favor of the so-called glorious revolution that I briefly mentioned. So for them, this was the only realistic revolution. So this revolution, it was basically an, an uh, the overthrow of James II of England by uh, William III, and it resulted in a constitutional monarchy and a Bill of Rights. The traditional view is that this revolution is bloodless and sensible and modern, but recent scholarship has actually questioned this interpretation and argued that it's no less bloodless or violent than any other revolution. But Chinese intellectuals reject this sort of reading and they stick to the older idea that, yes, this was a bloodless revolution. And so they use this as a sort of ideal revolution, whereas the French Revolution is considered a counter model that is violent. And that is, of course, for them connected to the Cultural Revolution. And so the term revolution here, uh, as mentioned, I want to I use it here because I want to highlight that they're not simply echoing the official discourse. There are important differences. And also, it is quite the shift from earlier Marxist uh, approaches. Advocating conservatism and liberalism in this context is actually quite drastic and revolutionary, we might say. But revolution here also has a third meaning, uh, namely... I also argue that in the debates of the early 1990s, we see pre-modern uses of revolution in a Chinese context, and these uses were moral. So this is also very much a moral debate. And um, so in the modern period, revolution, Kuoming, um, basically um, refers to drastic and radical change inspired by... So this was came from Japan, right? Kakumi. But before... Um, 
Göming was overthrowing the mandate of heaven. So it was cyclical and it was strongly moral. And this moral dimension is still very strongly present in the debate. So it's not just about revolution as a drastic shift, but also I want to highlight this this moral dimension. And um, so generally throughout the book, I use this concept of realistic revolution to refer to a set of tensions that are present uh, in these various advocacies. So on the one hand, intellectuals now advocate rational and gradual reform um, and reject the moralism and idealism of the previous periods and the sort of utopianism of the Mao period. But at the same time, you can see that this moralism and concern with the future is still very much present in the discussion And secondly, they also argue for a a detached scholarship, but we see that they still um, consider themselves to be responsible for the fate of the nation and for all under heaven. And the debates remain highly uh, prescriptive and uh, in the the sort of sense uh, as highlighted by, by Gloria Davis, they continue to worry about China. So, yeah, this is the reason why I sort of use this 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 sort of term realistic revolution to denote uh, the broader discussion on radicalism in 20th century China that took place uh, between roughly 1989 and 1993, but that actually extended for many years after that. Perfect. Thank you. And I think, as you mentioned in your answer, this this term, and thank you so much for unpacking it, it does do so much um, for your book, and it captures um, so much about this period. And I love that you said that, you know, the um, these intellectuals are not, uh, not just echoing um, the party line and sort of pragmatism, and they're not, as we've already talked about, they're not just parroting um, imported concepts uh you know there's a lot of um blending in lenses that are that things are being looked at th- uh through here and one i think one thing that comes through very clearly um in your book is that you know even these terms uh radicalism and conservatism they're sort of in in flux they're you know they don't they mean different things to different intellectuals and they mean different things to different periods of time and they mean different things in China, in the context that you're looking at them, than they did elsewhere in the world. And you sort of, you make a point to end um, your book commenting on this directly. Uh, You say, and I'll quote from your book here, um, Chinese uses of conservatism during the early 1990s encourage us to move beyond the search for equivalent conceptual counterparts and to rethink existing notions of conservatism based on Eurocentric definitions and Eurocentric interpretations of modernity. So could you talk about this directly? Because I think this is a really um, meaningful and useful point that your book as a whole is making. Yeah, so I'm inspired here by um, Lei Jenko, who also engages, uh, who wants to sort of look at Chinese thought in a more global context. And um, what I mean here is that um, when we look at definitions of conservatism, they're often framed in relation to the Enlightenment and sort of, for example, if we look at um, the German sociologist Karl Mannheim, he says, okay, so conservatism is a style of thought that opposes the rationality and the abstract thought 
of the Enlightenment, and instead we get an embrace of the particular and the historically grown. Similarly, uh, if we talk about Burke, he would say that um, conservatism is really about understanding the present as the last chain um, of a process of historical growth. And so if we look at conservatism in a Chinese context, yes, intellectuals are certainly referring to some elements of this, right? They're talking about the concrete, the particular, and they're opposing rationality. But there is a very big difference in context. And the point that I'm making is that conservatism was a framework in which Chinese intellectuals discussed the long-standing conundrum of how to modernize yet remain Chinese. So for them, as one intellectual um, phrased it to me in an interview, the problem of modernity was how to realize modernity. And so it's a very different framework. And I argue that this, this, the, the use of this framework, basically, it remained sort of trapped in this whole modernization um, logic. And it was very much about improving this process and being oriented towards the future. So the present was certainly not approached as um, the last chain of a historical process. So instead of sort of um, using pre-existing definitions, I'm more interested in looking how they make use of these concepts, both as advocacies and also as labels. And that's why I make use of um, Kozelek. So he's a conceptual historian. Um, uh, and um, I look at how the meaning of these terms uh Changes So Kozelik notes that uh, concepts change as social contexts, economic, political contexts change. And I argue that specifically in this context of rapid change of early 1990s China, it is very useful to uh, use conceptual history as an approach because before um, conservatism was actually a very negative context, concept in a Chinese context, uh, it was considered... Um, you're opposed to change, so it's very negative. And under during the Mao period, conservatism actually was associated with feudalism um, and being backward. But what happens now is that intellectuals are calling themselves conservatives and neoconservative, and it was considered a sort of positive, gradual uh, reform program. So this is a very drastic uh, shift. And... Um, so, so this also indicates that it's used very differently in a Chinese context. Specifically, what I want to highlight if we discuss it in relation to modernity is that the situation is very different for those uh, for whom what it meant to be modern was imposed from outside. And other scholars have also pointed this out. So, uh, so, so what this meant was that modernity was also then very much equated with Western ideas. And this, of course, changes the discussion. And um, so if conservatism is very much tied to 18th century Europe, we need to look at what it means in late 20th century China and also in conditions where notions of being modern were sort of imposed from, from outside and so, yeah, therefore, I, I use this conceptual history 
and um, and I argue that it's very much oriented towards the future. So uh, specifically, interestingly, so they argue for pragmatism and uh, gradualism, but they do so through a framework of isms. And isms in China or Zhui were actually introduced in the early 20th century during the May 4th period specifically. And uh, they were at the time also kind of what Kozelik refers to as concepts of movement. So they were programs for action. So I argue that we still see this very much in the 1990s. They may criticize uh, certain notions of change, but they actually do so to improve the process and to improve China's future. And so we're still very much dealing with these kind of concepts uh, of movement. And so so that's why I, I argue for the understanding of conservatism within this long-standing broader debate about Chinese modernization. Yeah. And just to re- thank you. And just to return to, I think, um, as something that we talked about right at the beginning of our conversation, um, I think I, I returned to my earlier point about, you know, one thing that I think comes through very clearly in your book is that there is a lot going on. Um, I think that um, to me was, uh, again, um, highlighted by your answer there and thinking again about um, what uh, Chinese intellectuals are thinking about and grappling with and, you know, trying to uh, plan for the future with um, during this period. So with that, now that you are uh, finished, I guess, with mapping out all that was going on uh, between um, uh, in the early um, in the early nineties, what are you working on now? What is inspiring you at the moment? So um, yeah, so since I've spent the last uh, eight years in in Singapore, my current research um, has been shaped by, I guess, living here, and I'm still exploring the intersections of knowledge and migration, as I do in in, in this book. But instead of looking at the sort of emigres, as I've done in the book, I'm now looking at uh, returnees. So my current project is about. Um, ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, uh, students specifically, who returned to mainland China after 1949 and who were re-educated. And so I'm looking, so again, it's about the question of what it means to be Chinese, but I'm now bringing this back to an earlier context and I'm connecting it to return. And instead of just looking at texts, I'm now also adding a more institutional perspective in that I'm looking at the role of Jinan University in Guangzhou in this process. So this was a university that was set up for these sort of returned overseas Chinese. And I'm also looking at um, policy angles, so sort of discourses on returned students and also the reality on the grounds. Uh, So I'm making use of archival sources from the Guangdong Provincial Archives, and uh, I'm also using oral uh, history accounts. So yeah, so it's still um, about the intersection of the history of knowledge and migration, but I'm now um, looking at a different time period, and I'm also, um, yeah, it's not about emigrating, but the notion of return, and I'm trying to insert 
a bigger, um, I guess, more a bigger variety of sources to to see what happens to the narrative. Uh, since I focused so much on these texts in my previous project, I thought I'd try something different um, for this for this um, new project. That sounds like a fascinating sort of uh, branching out as you just um, described it, particularly with the, the idea of return um, and the institutional focus. Of They both sound like fascinating angles to sort of tack on to what um, you're looking at. Um, so thank you so much uh, for, for, you know, for talking about this project in particular and for helping uh, me and listeners to unpack uh, all of the different layers and all of the different lenses um, that you see um, during this period. So Els, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on and, and helping uh, me understand, but helping listeners understand as well, your book and this period more generally. Yeah, well, thank you so much for this opportunity and for taking the time to read through my lengthy book and uh, also, yeah, for asking all these wonderful questions. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.